Making movies is really tough To get it all done you gotta know your stuff First you write a script, then you raise some cash Shoot the film, then you're done in a flash So here's some things that you need to know It's my first feature Hello and welcome to My First Feature. I'm your host, Ethan Cushing. I'm a director and producer working in Los Angeles, and this is the podcast where each week I interview a new filmmaker about the experience of directing their first feature film. With me today is writer-director Liz Manichel. Liz works at Sundance in the Creative Distribution Initiative, but she also is a talented filmmaker in her own right. She's directed a handful of music videos and shorts, including a TV show and PBS, but in 2013, she directed her first feature film, Bread and Butter. Hi, Liz. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Uh, what's the mnemonic for saying your last name? Oh, Manishel. Man, it's a shell. Amazing. That's, I'm sure that it clicks every time you, you say it. Like, yeah. that's easy. I don't know why, but when people say Manishil, it right. like rubs me of wrong. Course. And so it's I've like, developed this fun great. little tip. <laughs> that's great. Um, so we've been off for a little bit. I had a, uh, I got a full-time job in February, so I've been dark a little bit here with the podcast. Do we get to hear about that? Are you uh, just going to be very sure, enigmatic? I'll probably be enigmatic about it for the time being, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I've been dark for a little bit in the podcast and people have been clamoring for more episodes. So I'm glad to have you. And it's actually, we've been trying to have this happen for a bit. Yeah. And I believe I put the call out on Facebook. Was that how I found you? I think Todd Rosenfeld tagged me. That's right. On Facebook. A mutual friend on Facebook tagged me. And Todd and Emily are best friends with Christine Weatherup, who's the lead actress in Bread and Butter. Got it. Great. That's right. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a long winding road. So, uh, yeah. So mutual friend Todd recommended you. You reached out. Uh, you sent me uh, a Vimeo link to the film and I got to see it. And here we are. So yeah. thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, Oh, let's start briefly uh, before we get into your history of, so just if you could give me the quick elevator pitch of Bread and Butter so people know what we're going to talk about. Uh, I frame it as an anti-romantic comedy. So um, I could get into plot synopses, but basically what's more interesting to me is to talk about the purpose of the film. Mm -hmm. I made it because I watched too many romantic comedies when I was a kid and I think that they created delusions about relationships. And so I wanted to make what I call a romantic comedy for the rest of us. Great. Um, and very briefly, uh, on a plot level, it, yeah. I mean, that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, very smart. But then day to day, it's a, a woman who, um, she's essentially a 30 year old virgin and, uh, all of a sudden two men are interested in her and she needs to choose between them, but they're both a little bit off. Right. Great. Amazing. Um, so we'll get into that in a bit, but uh, let's rewind a bit and tell me how you got into filmmaking, how you got to Sundance. Like, what's your what's your journey? Uh, I wanted to be an actress for a very long time, and then I took film classes at community college when I was in high school because I wanted to watch performances uh, as an actress. And for some reason, one day I woke up and all the desire to want to be an actress like disappeared. It was very bizarre and unexplainable. But shortly thereafter, I was watching this movie. It's a pre very pretentious French film called Stolen Kisses by Francois Truffaut. And in the movie, uh, Antoine Toinelle stares down the lens of the camera at what I thought was me. I thought he was staring at me. And for some reason, that was my like weird wake up. You should be a director. You don't want to be an actor. You want to be mm. in control of a lot of more elements, I guess. And ever since then, I've been taking this major leap of faith based off of this one moment that I had while watching this movie. Based off this actor, probably dead now. Yeah, oh, well, is it Tuan dead? I mean, is Jean-Pierre Leo dead? 
I'm asking Sean. I don't know. <laughs> Sean is here. My boyfriend, Sean. I don't know. He might be alive, but probably okay, dead. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> but across time and space, you saw this actor looking into your soul and yeah. you decided to be a filmmaker. It's so crazy, That's very right? romantic. I like yeah. it. Um, uh, so, so you you had this awakening uh, and then you, did you transition into taking classes or courses for filmmaking? No, or I was did terrified. Just, okay. I was so scared. Um, I went to undergrad. I got my uh, degree in film and media studies. We took one production course and I remember having like panic attacks on a daily basis because I was, you know, when you put so much pressure on something, it just gets really scary. I think a lot of directors feel a lot of paralyzing fear sometimes because they have so much passion for what they do. Um, so I went to grad school and that's where I um, really came out of my shell, started making projects, starting getting less terrified and really feeling like I came into being. And you went to grad school at USC? Yeah. Right. Got it. Uh, and so that's where you got a little more comfortable behind the camera and started to yeah. feel like you, this was something you could do. And that's like the big thing. It's like if I get to talk to a beginning beginning filmmaker and they are saying how anxious they are, it's like, it's it's so, you know, it's ridiculous, but you just say you got to do it. You got to do it and you have to make a lot of shit before you can feel proud of something. But the worst situation you could be in is just feeling like you're desperate to make something and powerless in how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you meet a group of kind of like-minded artists at, at USC? I mean, did you find your crew there or, or did that come after, after school? Um, I didn't meet a lot of people who saw filmmaking the way I saw filmmaking. I grew up watching a lot of like nineties independent film and really romanticizing that age of like the do it yourself, pay things you know, pay for everything on credit cards and do whatever you can to scramble by and make your content and USC furnishes a very different type of filmmaker. I don't, you went to Chapman, right? I did, yeah. So I don't know if you have any, um, I don't know, pers- you know, perspective. Let's get into it. Let's talk <laughs> shit about our film schools. But USC, it's like a lot of, and I love George Lucas and love Steven Spielberg, but it's a lot of like mini Lucas Spielbergites. And then, um, and then I guess that's the issue. There's a lot of people who are really interested in like those bigger budget pictures and want to like, navigate in that world. And I was kind of like the weird oddball girl. So I studied documentary because I found more people in documentary were going to be like, we're going to make it with spit and shoe polish and just tell our stories the way we could. Mm. Um, so did, did you end up making a thesis film there? I made a thesis documentary. Oh, it's doc. 24 minutes. It was on the documentary channel and it's on snag films and it's about um, the carousel world. It's the wild world of carousels. <laughs> You'd be surprised how politically I, complicated it I is. I imagine it was the tagline. It's something about a brass ring. Well, no, but wait, I mean, that was brought up a lot. I didn't sure. even know about a rest. I didn't know anything oh. about carousels. I was brought in because um, I was brought into the world because a woman I knew had an entire warehouse full of like retired carousel animals. Mm. And I was like, that's really interesting. Why does she collect these? And what's her obsession? And then, you know, we made this movie about it. What's it called? Called round and round, round and round, round and round, and it's available online somewhere. It's on Snag Films. Snag I can just Films. Send the link. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I'll put that in the description. That sounds interesting. Um, so you made a doc, uh, a short doc thesis. You graduated USC, mm-hmm. uh, and then you had to grapple with the uh, crushing reality of uh, student loans and and bills and the real world. Yeah, I graduated USC in 2010. Uh, from grad school. And um, I think it was right around the time of the writer strike. There was some sort of situation, you know, with writer strike around then. 
and employment was really, really hard to find. So I took the first thing that I got offered and the, I don't mean to like, I, I probably tell this story like one too many times, but I think it's funny because I was a personal assistant to a director in the Valley and there were a lot of things that he asked me to do that were really inappropriate. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the things was, um, taking his fecal matter to his colonoscopy doctor. And I was there. At, I had to do that did, too. Are you serious? Yes. No, that's amazing. I haven't heard anyone else has ever had to do that. I had that. to FedEx it somewhere. Oh, I mean, that's the same thing. You have to put it in something and take it somewhere. And I'm not a prude, but like, uh, I was just thinking to myself, I went to graduate school. I have this dream in life. I have a master's for God's sake. <laughs> and I'm carrying this man's poop, you know. You're literally like, taking a shit. Yes. And so that was the inspiration for me to say, like, I need to make my first feature. Really? Yeah. You were like at the doctor's office reevaluating your <laughs> like, life what choices. Am I doing? Yes, exactly. As, as maybe you were as well. Maybe when so. you- <laughs> um, that's unbelievable. Um, Sorry, I'm still okay. reeling over that. That's that's crazy. Uh, so d- did that lead you to to leave that job? Or? No, I stayed in that job. <laughs> I stayed in the job for like bills. two more years. Sure. Uh, but I crowdfunded on Kickstarter and I raised money. And um, even that boss like came on as an EP in the very beginning to help me, wow. you know, with the film. And eventually we we parted ways. And we, you know, I think we're still friends. But um, I used every opportunity I could from that position um, to gather support for the first film. Mm. So so was this feature kind of your first project out of film school? Yeah, and it was my wow. first real fiction project. I okay. did a fiction piece at USC, but um, I wasn't really proud of it. There were a lot of problems with it. So I went into making my first feature thinking, I don't really have a lot of experience in the fiction world. And that's another thing where it's like you meet a lot of filmmakers who are like, should I make this short beforehand? Do I need to practice before I make the feature? And I may be a little bit different than others, but I always say, no, make the feature because if I can do it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. If you have that story you want to tell, you Mm -hmm. should go tell it. So there was no there was no thought in your mind to make like a feature documentary using your degree or no, and I, I don't mean to get off too off track, but I got very disillusioned by the documentary world. Okay, so um. I don't know. I mean, basically, I just felt like there were a lot of compromised ethics with some of the filmmakers that I worked with over Mm. time. And it wasn't necessarily like they were bad people, but they bent uh, the footage to their will. And there's no objectivity in documentary. It's a true cinema veritas. Yeah, there's like, (laughs) there's no, you can never have objectivity, but I just felt like there were too many manipulations for my taste. So Mm. I felt very uncomfortable about that. Fascinating. so where did bread and butter come from? So you, you decided this is something you had to do. Do you remember this? You, was it, was that time at the doctor's office? Like, was that the day that you, in your mind, the switch flipped in terms of deciding to make a film? Pretty much. I mean, that's where I, you know, that's the story I tell. So I think it is, but, um, I had written a script in film school. And so I was like, I'm going to pick that script up. I'm going to take it out of, you know, whatever, drive it was on and I just started looking at it, polishing it, sending it around. And that script was um, a combination of two ideas that I had. And one was um, a girl who falls in love with marginalia. If you know what I don't, marginalia is like the scribblings, like the pencil scribblings in a book that someone may make. And then the other idea was, um, God, what was the other idea? It's probably like, 
you know, a, a woman coming into her own and um, falling in love with someone who is having a breakdown. Mm. And so we kind of combine those ideas. Got it. Um, so you, you, you had a process of taking those ideas and rewriting the script that eventually became bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you collaborate with anybody on the screenplay or was it all you or? Uh, it was all me, okay. but I had a lot of people give really, really great notes. And throughout USC, um, it took two semesters to write the script. And then after USC, you know, it went through writers groups and friends and family giving notes. Like we all, mm-hmm. we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember the, moment where you felt like it was a shooting draft or, or do you, was there a, I think my producer told me, I, I think that's okay. sometimes you need that like kick in the butt a little bit. I don't really remember, but Tiffany, my lead producer on the film, we would have these meetings where she would give notes and kind of update me about whether we were ready to go out. And, um, I think at a certain point she's like, you're almost there, almost there. And then I was like, okay, let's, let's do this. Got it. Um, and then you, then you presumably started your Kickstarter. I think I did the Kickstarter before I'm trying to remember cause Sean was in the Kickstarter. I don't mean to keep looking at him, but, um, <laughs> Sean is a disembodied head here in the, in the room. <laughs> He's a Sean. Um, trying to remember, I feel like most likely we did the Kickstarter before the script was really finished or really ready. Uh, because my big thing is like, you know, you pretend like the train is rolling before the train is really rolling. So you start gathering the money because cast isn't going to pay attention to you unless you're funded and no one's going to want to jump on board unless they feel like it's a reality. So we started raising money probably a little too early mm. in 2012. Got it. Can you talk about that process? I mean, everyone has a different story with regards to Kickstarter, but what was yours? Yeah. Well, I um, actually consult on crowdfunding campaigns now. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So briefly, how, how does your work at Sundance relate to the development of your, of this film, I guess? Um, if well, at all? I just, it's like a weird, like they created me in a lab for this job I have at Sundance because the job at Sundance is um, being essentially a distribution consultant for Sundance alumni, along with my teammates, Chris and Jess. And I worked for a distribution consultant for two and a half, three and a half years before I started working at Sundance and then consulting on crowdfunding campaigns and I've run two crowdfunding campaigns. So basically it's um, an audience building supporter at Sundance, if that makes sense, because distribution and crowdfunding are all about connecting with your audience. So hmm. I went to Kickstarter for my first feature because um, my friend Michael Callahan, um, he he recommended it. Like that was 2012 was when Kickstarter was really popular. And when a lot of it hadn't like donor fatigue hadn't set in yet. So um, we were looking at Indiegogo and Kickstarter and we ultimately decided on Kickstarter because of that, like all or nothing momentum. And we raised $36,000. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Do you have any, do you have any tips to, to a filmmaker maybe taking that route in terms of that process? Yeah. I think what, filmmakers or anyone is afraid of is they're afraid of looking vulnerable. They're afraid of asking for money and they're afraid of looking quote unquote desperate. Desperate is this word that I like to use. I think desperation is actually can be a good thing. And so many people are like taken aback and offended when I say act desperate. But what I'm really saying is act emotional and show people how important this project is to you. So if you say, give me money, give me money. That's not, that doesn't mean anything. But if you say, I've been waiting to make this film for 16 years, I have to get this money. I need you be my hero. Then there's like an emotionality to it. 
and yes, sure, maybe desperation, but I think one that is effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so you raised $36,000. Was that the budget for the film or was that a, a portion of it? It was a portion. Okay. We met an investor through our Kickstarter campaign, oh, okay. small investor. She brought on another small investor and strangely enough, and and this is very weird, but we found a random savings bond from my childhood wow. that we didn't know existed that supplemented the budget in addition to my credit card. Sure. <laughs> um, so it was a combination of all of those things. Sure. And we in the range of like uh, the SAG thing, like is it like micro, ultra, oh, low? It's, I mean, I'm actually really open about the budget. Sure. Um, it's a hundred. Okay. And that's all in. That includes distribution expenses, but not. It doesn't include the marketing spend from our distributor. Sure. So I would say everything would probably be about 120, mm-hmm. but everything that I was responsible for was 100. And how did 100 feel to you on set? I mean, obviously I mean, we could always use more money, but I mean, well, just the idea. Like I remember, you know, writing cashiers checks or transferring money and just being like, "This is not my money. This I've never seen." this much money in my life. This is shocking. And on set, you know, we, we, we didn't have trailers. We didn't have green rooms. No one got, I, I used to give actors this spiel when I was talking to them, I would say there's no green M&Ms. I mean, I think the joke is brown M&Ms, but for some reason I thought it was green. Um, there's no green M&Ms. There's no double bangers. You know, there's nothing, you know, we, it's a labor of love and everyone was, comfortable, but we had n- we didn't really have much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about casting if you could, because yeah. as a uh, comedy to myself, I was delighted to see Bobby Moynihan and Lauren Lapkus Yay. in the film. Um, how did you get those guys? I cast the film myself. Okay. Um, I used to be a freelance casting director. And when I say that, I'd be like for my projects and my friends projects, if they were, you know, I would do it for free for them or like maybe for a small stipend and it would just be like reaching out and holding open calls and looking through demo reels. There wasn't any real formality to it. We couldn't afford to hire a casting director. Mm. Um, I talked to casting directors. They did not want to (laughs) cast this film Mm -hmm. for the amount of money we had. So um, what I did is I essentially wrote love letters to the people that I really wanted to be in the film. And I reached out directly to the agents I wrote this like letter being like, I'm casting the film. I am the writer. I'm the director. This film means everything to me. Your client is my number one choice. You know, um, I'm happy to send along the script. And then I learned halfway through that the way to get to them is to write the offer letters. Mm. Um, and I don't know if, if, you know, this has already been covered or not. No, please. Um, so basically, you know, my advice is always go to the manager first, unless you have a connection to the agent managers, usually a little bit more open to hearing unsolicited, you know, Mm. reach outs. And then, um, if you can only get to the agent, approach the agent with a deal memo with an offer and you need to have an entertainment lawyer draft that up. But after you write one, you can amend it and, you know, change it for each additional actor. And that offer, um, agents have to pay attention to. Mm. They have to consider the role because it's like this binding scenario where they have to um, look at the offer if they mm. can set one. So is there, there's various different ways to get in through the door. But I found that um, the personal approach was really 
beneficial being Mm. like, here's a picture of me. Here's a picture of a picture of you on my fridge. Here's a picture of, you know, this is the reason why I love you and why you'd be perfect. And just being really um, transparent and emotional. And and so you wrote this letter to uh, the people that you wanted to cast in the film. Yeah, in, along mean, with an offer letter, presumably that said, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, I'm ready to do this. Like, no audition necessary. I'm not going after anybody else. Like, you're the guy." Kind of, yeah. I mean, it it's, it gets a little complicated that I don't think we'd even have time to go into. Sure. But there were different rounds where you know I'd nab certain people with the love letter and was so excited to have them on board, and they had to drop because. Um, you know, they were directing their own project. So then their agent would then um, bring us in and be like, hey, we have other clients. Who else would you want to go out to? Um, And then, you know, Bobby and Lauren Lapkus shared a manager. So that was fantastic. At, uh, is that Odenkirk Provisero? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've worked with them before. Oh, it's really cool. Well, they were like so wonderful, actually. And then... um, my mom went to college with Don Didowick, who plays the mother role. And Don Didowick is married to Harry Groner. Uh, and so it's like, the, it just became this weird overlapping festival of like nepotism, personal reach outs, and then like kind of hacking the system with these offer letters. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's awesome. I mean, again, like I'm sure at the back end of this, when you're looking for distribution beyond your own skill set, and that like those names are, are good to have. The only reason we got distribution was casting. Sure. Um, and this is something that I really like to talk about because, uh, it was news to me. Um, we didn't premiere at Sundance. We didn't premiere at Tribeca. What? We, no, shocking. We premiered at a festival called Woodstock. It's like middle upper, upper middle tier festival. Yeah. I really love it. Um, but before we even had our festival run, um, and someone in acquisitions at the orchard, which is this great distribution company found us because of IMDB pro, she was trolling projects that Lauren Lapkus was in and just reaching out to the filmmakers and asking to see those movies because she really liked Lauren Lapkus. Wow. So we, you know, a lot of people get distribution through their festival premieres or, you know, press releases, putting that out into the world. But it was cast for us and that's why cast is so mm, important. Yeah. Um, would you, would you say that, I mean, uh, going forward or, or to someone else trying to, to do what you're doing, like, is that kind of a similar strategy that you'd recommend of at least just like desperately trying to nab <laughs> one, you know, name that, that work with not, pe- not just not indiscriminately, but like yeah. someone like you are saying that you truly do love and, and want to work with and is yeah. right. Or, or maybe like, you know, I think Bobby for this, for this role, like it's, Definitely like a little against type in theory across, you know, SNL and his other comedies, but, but is very beautiful and endearing in this, in this role. And, um, I wonder if that's part of the reason that maybe he was attracted to it. Yeah. Um, and I think I wouldn't say that he necessarily had the support of his team to be in our film. I mean, you can get through to the agents, but that doesn't mean they really, and they can open their book to you, but that doesn't mean they really want you to um, make a film with their client. There's a lot of stalling techniques. There's a lot of weird politics that you have to go through. And ultimately, Bobby told me um, he did the film because he liked the script. So there's a lot of mind games in these negotiations is, is what I'd like to warn filmmakers about. Um, but ultimately, you know, the talent needs to be drawn to the product. And I do highly encourage 
filmmakers go after named talent in addition to, you know, non-named talent. The lead actress we found because I wrote an article and she's, you know, a stag after amazing actress. Um, but she read an article I wrote about how I was looking for a non-cookie cutter actress and she came into an open call. So, mm. you know, it doesn't mean you have to fill your entire roster with these quote unquote named talent. Sure. Um, but it's an opportunity as a director to work with really wonderful veteran actors and, you know, play into the system a little bit because it does help with distribution and marketing. Okay. So we've hopped around a bit, but, but let's talk about actual production. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you started shooting in 2013. Yes. Um, June or July, 2013. What was, what was the night before? Like, uh, you were, you got it all ready to go. Really terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I was re- in like the weeks leading up to making the film. I was really, really scared. Um, in addition to the fact that I didn't have any, um, you know, a lot of fiction directing experience, you know, I was working with these actors that I'd watched on television and movies and they were very intimidating. And then, um, I'm an anxious person, so that didn't help. And I'm really horrible at storyboarding and shot listing. Like it's a major You're really selling yourself well. I know. (laughs) Well, I'm getting better at all these things. Um, So it was really, really scary. Conversely, the last day of the shoot, I was really, really angry for some reason because I felt like um, it was gone. It was disappearing. You know what I mean? And I didn't want it to end. And I felt like I had... Um, you know, all the options were gone because the shoot was over. So you get, it's an incredibly emotional experience. Mm. What was your relationship with your DP? Like given your, your, your self-professed sort of fiction uh, lack, how was that relationship? Did they kind of pick up some slack for you or? Well, did they- she like, she's was so great about her is that um, I was very open from the very beginning about how um, I, I don't think spatially it's very hard for me to break things down in that way, in that abstract way. I think in dialogue, I think in story, I think in ideas and themes. Um, and so I did the shot list. I did the storyboards. You know, I did all of the diagrams. And then on set, um, me, Katie, the cinematographer and Leslie, the AD would get together and just kind of like break down the day like the night before. And she would kind of translate all my ideas and bring to table all her ideas in a way that was really efficient in a way that could be translated again to the AD so she could organize. So I think it was like a learning curve for me, but Katie and Leslie and I worked as this like great team. Hmm. And I I don't want to make too big a deal out of it, but I'm curious, uh, I noticed in the credits, like there are a lot of females in, in key roles in this film, um, which was great to see. And I wonder, um, if that energy affected the set in some way or or if, was that an intentional choice or just were that, those are the best people for the job? It's absolutely intentional. We wanted to have all female heads of departments, but we screwed up because, our scripty was a boy Ugh. and our editor, our lead editor was a boy. And um, who else was a boy? There was another boy. Sean's a boy. The nerve. Um, right? um, you know, we had someone who worked in music editing who was a boy. So every now and then, you know, you'd see a, a male department head, but our goal was all female department heads. Um that was the goal because I'm a woman in film and you look around and there are, it's hard for us. And then also I just was more comfortable, um, being surrounded by female teammates. So, um, I feel like, oh, and then there's a very 
sassy nature to the movie. So when we had scenes that involved um, a dildo or involved a vibrator or involved a blowjob, like all these things, you know, we we wanted to set up like an environment of trust and safety for our actress um, who handled it obviously incredibly well, but that was also a concern of mine. Hmm. That's amazing. I love it. Um, what was production itself like day to day? I mean, were there, do you remember any kind of fires that cropped up that you had to put out or obviously directing is kind of this like three ring circus where you're trying to like focus on the thing in front of you. But um, it, it, not that this is a, a correlation, but like the movie felt just very, um, um, I don't know, kind of not safe is the wrong word, but just kind of felt like there was like a gentle nature to it. And, mm-hmm. and, and it didn't feel like it was born out of the, the fires of, a, of like a filmmaking war per se, you know? Um, yeah. There's like a lightness yeah, to it. Yeah, I, yeah. I get that. And I love that. Um, I was very protected. My producers protected me. I mean, like I found out later that a crew member, I mean, he didn't die on set, but he like died on like he was part of our production and then like he died and then he needed to be replaced. Oh my God. So yeah. Like, like just weird things that I didn't know about. Like we had a camera malfunction. Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he died in the middle of your production. Not like not, not on, on set, set, but, but like yeah. in the middle of day one to day 30. He yeah. Died. yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. And he wasn't awful. like a key crew member. He was like maybe a day, like, you know, whatever it is. He came in and did a few days. But that was really, and I didn't really even get to meet him. Right. But it's just these weird scenarios where like. And that that's a good producer. Right. Shielding you from <laughs> like that. You Honestly. Know. And then they get replaced and I'm like, I didn't even like, know oh, about hey, it. Um, and I, I'm like really nervous that like that's not the right story and that's someone else's production because I was so sheltered. Sure. Um, but either way, there was like a camera malfunction, like the camera kept getting overheated and they swapped out the camera or the camera battery without really me knowing you know, just all these things that like, I was very well protected. What was also shocking about being on set that I wasn't surprised and that I was very surprised about is that I was, I was always in demand and I didn't even know that I was in demand. Like I would be walking on set just thinking I had nothing to do other than look at the shot list. And then my costume designer would be like, Liz, I need you to look at these seven things. And they would be like a surprise to me. I'm like, oh, she needs my input. Like this very odd feeling of like not knowing what to expect and then being surprised by how much the director's voice is needed at every opportunity. Absolutely. So that was really Hmm. great, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And it taught me, you know, lessons, obviously, for every other future production. It's like check in constantly, you know, and. Um, a lot of crew members are taught just to kind of make decisions because they don't normally get to communicate with the director as much on set as they'd like to. Mm. And that was another thing that I'd like to change is like making sure you're really constantly touching base with people and communicating. Mm. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, I was protected. Everything had like a weird um, improvisational feeling to it in terms of my workflow. Uh but the tone of the film was very much purposeful. It was supposed to be this kind of like, um, you know, this like indie, uh, slightly subversive, but like romantic film. Mm. What was your relationship with the actors like on set? Uh, you got these great people across the board. Um, how did you relate to them? How did you direct them? How did you get what you needed out of them? 
I, um, at USC, I don't know if they do this at Chapman, but at USC, they try to have you avoid uh, result-oriented directing. And that uh, that's pretty hard, I think. So at a certain point... 10% more sad, please. Right. <laughs> right. But it's really hard to be like, do it as if you're, you know, crying in a desert. I don't know, whatever Here's it is. Here's a verb to... Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, my lead actress was really good at just being like, what do you really want? Just tell me what you want and I'll translate it in my mind. Hmm. That was very helpful. Um, Bobby, I actually, I don't think I ever gave Bobby any direction. I literally think he came on set. He's just crushing it. Nailed it. And like, for some reason he, I, I think he just, and I didn't, I, it's like if I, if there was something wrong, I would have said something, but there was like, I never had to say anything. Were you just like gleefully looking at the monitor? Like yeah. this is exactly what I wanted. It was wonderful. Yeah. And, um, I think it was difficult working with actors who are much older than you because wanting to be respectful, but also knowing that they're used to a lot. Who's this kid think they are telling me to <laughs> act 10% sadder. Right. Like wanting to navigate that really carefully, but then also understand that like they're used to being treated so much better in terms of like food and separate areas and green rooms and just trying to not ask too much of them really was my technique there. So, um, but working with actors is, I think, the joy of making a film. Certainly. Um, so you, how long was the shoot? 16 days. 16 days. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, you, you guys rapped. You were a little frustrated that it was over. I was. Uh, I was snappy on my last day. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you presumably you went into post. Uh, mm -hmm. did, did your budget, had you planned, you know, had you planned for post, I guess? Because some people yeah. are like, you know. We finished it. Oh no, we're now at zero dollars. <laughs> we need to kickstart again for to hire an editor. No, you know we had mean? that in our budget. Okay, uh, but I would I have to mention the major concessions that my entire production and post team made in terms of the money that they were paid and the support they received. I mean, everyone did it for peanuts, especially editorial. Uh, and then you know we had I don't know, and then it's like we struck major deals with like colorists and. Um, post music supervisors and there, I mean, there was oh, a lot yeah. of, sorry. Yeah. I love the soundtrack in this Thank film. You. That's how, all Liz Lawson. Our Liz post music Lawson. Too. I'm going to hire her. She's amazing. Uh, how, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, like a Juno or like a, you know what I mean? It sounds mm -hmm. like a, a, a like much, folk yeah, but, but like on a much higher scale, you know what I mean? Like yeah. on, on this kind of level of production, like you're lucky to get your friends crappy band to like give you the license <laughs> to their, to their, song you know what I mean like well Liz is you know she's been in the industry for a while and she would essentially find bands and make playlists for every single scene and I'd go through and I'd pick my favorites but um we were looking for the title track for the very beginning of the film and I had heard this song by Allo Darlin which is actually a really established indie band and um we reached out to them and they were like no way you don't have enough money or it wasn't even that it was like you know, we're insulted that, <laughs> you know, like you're offering you. this little amount because you're making this movie and I'm sure you have tons of money and, you know, you can't expect us to to work for nothing. And um, we wrote this letter back to them being you sent like, them a copy of the budget. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was like, honestly, we're not reaching out. We're not trying to take advantage of you. Here's a step deal. If we make anything at this certain point, you get more. Um, 
we did this thing, MFN, Most Favored Nations, where everyone gets paid the same. So there's no issues of like jealousy or disrespect. With to the artists. Yeah. Uh. And, um, and, and then again, that idea of writing a personal letter to the artist to explain yourself so it's not just a suit trying to take advantage of an artist, that I think helped us. Mm. So, so you did have a, a piece of your budget earmarked for music? Yeah. I mean, okay. it was really my credit card, but okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Uh, you just PayPal the artist. <laughs> Here you go. I mean, actually, yeah. <laughs> In some cases it was. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it paid off. I mean, I think it's, that really uh, elevates the film and, and gives it a, a good yeah. um, vibe. So y- you worked with your editor. Uh, what was that process like? Were you there like over their shoulder clicking the mouse for them or did you let them go off and do their own first cut? We had two editors. Okay. And um, what they did is they essentially each took half of the film in the beginning, did a pass, did a first pass, and then they swapped and Fun. so each of them got their eyes and, you know, fingers on, on every single scene. And then after that, or maybe concurrent to that, we started doing in-person meetings where we'd watch scenes, talk about them, felt, you know, we would do like the index cards or the whiteboard and we had different cuts and we had this one cut, I think it was called like the breakthrough cut where it's like, we felt like, oh, we've broken through to what we think is an actual movie. And that was all because of killing your babies, right? As soon as you kill enough babies, you could start seeing the spine of the film. And that's, um, we caught, there was a musical number in the film we cut. Mm. There was an entire Greek chorus that kept on showing up in various different scenes. We cut them Mm. entirely. Um, Sean choreographed a dance where the Greek chorus would put themselves in the shape of a penis. And that was cut. And it's like one of my favorite moments, but just like some of the more broad absurdities were cut to make it that more airy. Interesting. Delicate Cause that tongue. kind of feels like in line with like when she's talking to her parents about these two boys she's dating mm-hmm. and like you see them in the background. Yeah. And for the, for a second I was like, wait, are they? Oh no, no, this is like a device. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of, more of those. Yeah. It kind of feels like, okay, that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you, you, you got to a place where you felt good about, Locking a cut. Yeah, we um, we did the Sundance submission like idiots because everyone always submits to Sundance way too early. Sure. And that's like the number one mistake filmmakers and do. did you like pull some strings or did you like... Oh, I didn't work at Sundance at that point. Oh, I, oh, I see. Yeah, I see. this is... Oh, but this is... This is was my, okay, this is all pre-Sundance. Yeah, this is all I pre-Sundance. Oh, I've only okay. been working at Sundance for a year. I see. Um, so we submitted to Sundance like idiots. I said submitted like a two and a half hour cut that didn't have color, sound, music. I mean, it was just big mess. Um, which I highly encourage no one to ever do. And then um, what we did is in the time between the Sundance submission and the South by submission, we re- we uh, we just kind of pushed forward very fast and cut an hour out of the film, started putting music in there. Cut an hour out of the film? Yeah. Yeah. So oh it's a 90 goodness. minute film. And so in the next few months, we cut an hour out and we put everything into our South by Southwest submission and then from then on, it was just uh, finessing the film. But I would say when we were at their South by Southwest submission, that was that was closer to our movie. Wow. Uh, yeah. Do you ever do you miss that lost hour at all? Or like, do you still dream about the things that were there or no. you feel good about? We did a Blu-ray where we have all of the deleted oh, scenes. That's fine. So I can see my anytime I want. Okay. Um, and so so talk about distribution like to me that's the hardest you know like that's the yeah the brass ring so to speak <laughs> um, um well i know so much more about distribution now because it's where i work 
at the time I worked for a distribution consultant and he helped me negotiate my contract with the orchard. Uh, And there's a lot of things that filmmakers don't know that you could actually negotiate in a distribution contract. So uh, my boss at the time, Peter Broderick, became my mentor and he negotiated this contract for me. And that's when I started to learn about distribution and all the things that were possible. So we signed a deal with The Orchard and I can't really talk about the deal points, but um, we did really well, actually. I just wrote an article about how we grossed um, nearly our entire budget uh, back. Congrats! And that's gross. It's not net, but it's still really unheard of to achieve those kind of gross numbers for a micro budget film. Uh, but I think a major part of that was cast and the orchard, all the work that the orchard did. And I started, there were some bizarre things that happened in distribution. Like we got an airline deal, uh, but it was for Royal Jordanian Airlines, <laughs> and which I thought, yeah, I thought it was like really hilarious because I'm a Jew and like, I'm just like, this is, I'm in the Middle East. And I never thought like but the Middle East would, would embrace this film. And they actually weirdly have, um, and their only content points that they wanted censored from the film were things that criticized religion or showed them drinking. So it was like this very odd experience of like totally cool with the blowjob, right? I was like, maybe the blowjob was kind of not positive, but like, um, you know, as an artist thinking about what are you willing to cut, and I uh, came to terms with like I'm a total whore. Like I will cut. I apparently I'll cut anything. Whatever it takes to get in those sweet sweet airplanes. Yes, I, it really was true, and I think at a certain point, you know, maybe ten years on the line, if I really have leverage. I'll start to like set boundaries, but, um, that, yeah, there were a lot of experiences like that where, you know, hmm. you're like, okay, cut my film up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then now looking back, I mean, you maybe didn't make every penny back, but you seems like you did very well and, and you don't have any regrets per se. And, um, what, what would you tell, you know, young baby Liz, if you could go back in time about this or what would you tell the next filmmaker who wants to do what you did? Like what's your big kind of ultimate tip? Uh, I mean, obviously the push for cast is incredibly important and I try to push filmmakers to incorporate name cast as often as possible, especially name cast who's open to doing press for your film because they're going to be, you know, when they're on Twitter and they're, you know, uh, at various press opportunities, um, they're going to be the mouthpiece. You know, if you can't afford like 5,000 Facebook ads, they're going to be this amazing resource for you and you want them to be proud of the work too. Um, in addition to that, I wasn't aware of how important opening weekend was for the release of a film. So yeah, we didn't have a theatrical run. We didn't open in a theater, but we went live on these platforms all on the same day. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was a digital deal. Got it. Uh, and all of my efforts should have been put, put into promoting the film during pre-sales and on that release day. And I'd say I made an effort, but I could have made a, a stronger effort because you're old news after a certain point. And if you get, um, I'm going to get distribution nerdy in a second, but if you get an SVOD deal, like if you're on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime, no one wants to pay to see your movie. They're going to go see it for free. So, you know, the only time you have to really make transactional revenue, which is iTunes and Google play is that, you know, several months where you're, when really, yeah, when it's out. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing is to like put all of your eggs in that like transactional release promotion. Huh? Very good. 
That's helpful. Um, any, any parting thoughts, uh, on the film as a whole or the process or beyond that? Just, uh, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. I'm really proud of it. And, um, I think going into the film, people, filmmakers often worry about, is this film going to define me? You know, is this, do you, do I want my first feature to be this? Because everyone's going to compare this film to every other film I make. There's lots of worries about what the first feature is. And I went into it not really thinking um, that this was the best film to define me. And I went into it and I left thinking, I don't know if this is the best film to define me. But most importantly, I feel like I made, I don't know, I'm proud of the movie and I'm proud when I stuck to my guns. And um, who cares is kind of the end of the day. It's like you make your movie, stop obsessing over reasons why you shouldn't make it or mm-hmm. why you should make another project instead. Mm-hmm. That's great. So just do it. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's, well, let's do the fun stuff now. We're going to play a game called Lost in Translation. And what that is, is I take uh, IMDb synopses and run them through Google Translate from English to French, from French to Spanish, to Lithuanian, to Russian, back to English. And you have to tell me what the movie is. Okay. So uh, in honor of your film, you have SNL alum Bobby Moynihan in it. So these are all movies that include an actor who at some point was a cast member on SNL. Cool. So that's your hint. Auto parts, incompetence in a factory, immature, the air, no talent. So they do not pass into the hands of new relatives and large companies. Tommy Way. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> we'll have to save the business. Yes, Tommy Boy. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. I really love Tommy Boy. <laughs> Great. Um, film star and a woman lost after the failure to establish a connecting road to Tokyo. Is that lost in translation? It is. <laughs> Correct. Very good. Number three. Bride who is the bride's best friend in honor of the competition is to improve the life of the high non-smoking. Oh my God. <laughs> um, oh my God. I want to say bridesmaids. Correct. But, oh, okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I don't know where non-smoking came in Yeah. somewhere along the way. Uh, great. You're three for three. And the final one, a mentally ill new provider is England's romance, meaning women's phone sex line reversal mattress salesman. <laughs> it is an attack that should make a large purchase of pudding. read it again. I will. I'll give it to you one more time. There is one word in here that should be the clue for you. A mentally ill new provider is England's romance, meaning women's phone sex line reversal mattress salesman. It is an attack that should make a large purchase of pudding. Um, I, I literally, it's like you spoke, have you ever hear, heard, heard like the AI poetry? Like yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, that yeah, sounded yeah. like to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sean, do you have a guess? Just cause you're the disembodied head here. Was pudding the one, the word? Oh my God. Soup, something soup, something pudding, pudding. Oh, can you just tell us? Should you, you should just tell us. It was punch drunk love. Oh, Adam I was Sandler. never going to get that. I'll, I'll, I'll read the real actual one. Yeah. That there. A psychologically troubled novelty supplier is nudged towards a romance with an English woman, all the while being extorted by a phone sex line run by a crooked mattress salesman and purchasing stunning amounts of pudding. It's been so long since I've seen Punch Drunk yeah. <laughs> All right. Three for four. That's good. Uh, all right. And now the speed round. Just answer these as quickly as you can. Don't think about them. What's your favorite movie quote? Oh, it's a quote from Broadcast News. It's like, Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. <laughs> Great. What's your Desert On movie? You only get one to watch for the rest of your life. I mean, it's probably Broadcast News. All right. Ah. Two for two. 
Uh, why? Why? What about broadcasting? I just this? think it's so well written, and okay. the female character is just really, you know Great. prominent. Which director would you body swap with and inherit his or her filmography, uh, and then you get to take over that career going forward? Um, I haven't seen all of Jeff Nichols' films, but what I've seen, I just like envy his career and his quality. Okay. Wait, why is Sean shaking his head? What would you say? You'd say like. Don't oh, mansplain gross. her body Jeez, swap Sean. director, Sean. Jeff Nichols is cool. <laughs> uh, do you have any pre-shoot rituals? Uh, oof, no, probably just having a panic attack. Okay. Yeah. Great. Popping Xanax. That's great. <laughs> I uh, actually wore like the same earrings throughout the entire shoot. And on the last day of our pickups, they broke. Uh-huh. So that was this weird. Sort of like threw them into the sea. Yeah. That's great. Uh, what's your favorite item at craft service? Oh, red vines. Red vines. Dream actor to work with? Uh, Allison Tolman. Okay. Underrated film everyone should check out? I really like Stuck on You, and I think <laughs> no one appreciates Deep this Fairly film. Brothers cut. I really love it. I think it's hilarious. I remember, being, I, I remember liking it when I saw it. Yeah, but, but everyone like makes since. fun of you when you say you like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So. Great. I love that answer. Um, that's it. Liz, you did it. Yay. Thanks so much. We did it. Um, so if people want to see Bread and Butter, where can they find it? Uh, I would go to breadandbuttermovie.com or lizmanichelle.com. They can email me directly, uh, liz.manichelle at gmail.com if they have questions, if they want to talk, if they want to ask about making their first feature, and I'll send them a free link to the film and anything that they want. Amazing. Uh, and then beyond your personal email address, is there any <laughs> other place people can find you online, Twitter, uh, Instagram? At Liz Manichelle. Okay. Um, and then I have a new film called Speed of Life that we're shooting in April. So at Speed of Life Movie on Twitter is where I'm trying to build an audience. Okay. Can you talk about that real quickly? Is that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we already have some actors attached, but we're shooting my second feature in April. It's going to be a 15 day shoot. And the premise is that David Bowie's death creates a rift in time and space that dramatically affects, um, a relationship, I guess. Uh, that's probably as vague as I want to be right now. Amazing. I love it. Um, well, I am at Ethan Cushing on Twitter. The podcast is at First Feature Pod. If you want to get in touch, email us at myfirstfeaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, guys, I'm going to try to get back on getting more guests here. Um, it's been a little crazy, but I'm also in need of more directors with feature films. So please you know. email me, tweet me. Uh, let me know who I should talk to next, and we will see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye.